More information at abbeymuseum.org. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have a well-known guest to this show, uh, also a, a former co-host, Maria Gerard, uh, Native rights and environmental activist, and a Penobscot Nation tribal member. Uh, and today, we're going to talk about... Um, we're going to catch up on some other some issues of, like the environment. We're going to talk a little bit about allies and talk about the river. Um, so, environment, allies, and river spells ear. <laughs> <laughs> so, give us your ear, and we'll talk about this. Uh, so, we're going to start. So, Maria, uh, welcome to the show thanks. this morning, and thanks for agreeing to come on such short notice. Absolutely. Um, I had another show all planned. I'm not going to make excuses, but, you know, things happen. So uh, I asked Maria to uh, come in today and uh, discuss a few things. And uh, Maria has done some uh, research on the land claims history. Um, and uh, she's written a thesis. And we're going to talk a little bit about that thesis uh, just for background. And we're going to go into uh, other other current issues. So, Maria, talk a little, hear a little bit about your uh, your history, uh, land claims history research. And um, yeah, thanks for having me here, Donna. As always, it's good to be here at uh, WERU. And um, it seems that my thesis research in the land claims is coming very handy um, <laughs> in this day and age. And um, throughout my research which basically looked at about 20 years of pre-land claim history, so from the 1960s through the 70s, right up until 1980, when uh, the main Indian land claims was settled. And it looks at um, sort of the conditions of the tribes and what sort of um, problems and conditions the tribes were looking to pull themselves out of by suing the state government. And uh, essentially what, what had happened is over, you know, hundreds of years, decades, the tribes lost significant tracts of land. And in the 1960s, um, there came a catalyst for the tribes to really press this issue and to explore um, the loss of their lands, and that came through the land claims. And of course, the, um, the foundational basis for this land claims came in a federal law it was a 1794 Trade and Non-Intercourse Act that said that any and all land transactions between Native peoples or Native tribes and non-Natives had to be ratified by Congress. And in the 1970s, um, through research, it was uncovered that none of the land transactions that happened since statehood, since 1820, had ever been ratified, and so they were all null and void. And so um, this caused quite a 
quite a situation, as you can well imagine, in the 1970s. Although it was interesting because throughout my research, I, um, you know, I interviewed uh, negotiators who were part of the tribal negotiations team throughout this era. And they all said that nobody really paid any attention to this land claims until it started really hitting the news um, and after federal support came our way. So everyone just kind of ignored it, and the the overall opinion, it seemed, that was portrayed in the media was, how dare those Indians bite the hand that feeds them? Um, and of course, we know through history that that definitely is a, a false uh, misrepresentation of what was going on uh, for so long. And um, it's interesting to note that once the the federal opinion began to sway in favor of the Penobscots and Passamaquoddies in this land claims case. That's when uh, Mainers sort of um, woke up to the reality of the situation, and the media played a really big role in making that happen. And um, I spent I spent a good amount of time with mainstream media resources in my research, and what I discovered was that hardly ever was Penobscot or Passamaquoddy perspectives represented in the media. So you think you could maybe compare and contrast uh, media, you know, what was going on back then media-wise and as to what's happening now? Um, Well, let's see. Interestingly enough, um, the current case, the current legal battle that the Penobscots are in against the state of Maine government, uh, Penobscot Nation v. Mills, is uh, really being quietly played out uh, behind the scenes. There really hasn't been a whole lot of uh, media attention to it, and I think that that's probably by purpose and design. Um, And then Recently, um, there was a a little barrage of news articles that came out, um, I want to say last week, right, uh, regarding the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. And it was almost like history repeating itself. It was, um, you know, an attempt through the media to look disparagingly at the tribes, and it did not represent at all any tribal perspective in the news and um, if, if listeners have missed that piece of news, um, what was happening last week was um, there was a media response to a recent Environmental Protection Agency decision which required the main Department of Environmental Protection to essentially clean up its act in um, Indian Territory. And uh, that, that came out in a came about in an interesting way, this EPA decision. Last year, um, in July of 2014, the, the Penobscot Nation had just finished um, working on developing its own water quality standards for the Penobscot River. And when they put, put out the public notice as required by the EPA, 
And this is something that many tribes across the nation are doing. They're developing their own water quality standards for their reservation. So uh, Penobscot's following suit. Took them many years to get them to a point where they were ready for public opinion. And um, just days after they put out the notice um, saying that they were going to be opening this up to public opinion, the um, State Department of Environmental Protection sued the EPA, demanding that the state should have jurisdiction over water quality in Indian Territory. And so the decision that came out last week was a result of the state forcing their hands to make a decision uh, around water quality in Indian Territory. And the decision essentially said to the state that, um, yes, you can have uh, jurisdiction over water quality in Indian Territory, and that is consistent with the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act, but um, the water is not, um, it's not good enough quality for Indian sustenance fishing rights. And so the EPA decision acknowledged Penobscot sustenance fishing rights in the Penobscot River and demanded that the DEP take steps to clean up the river so that um, the fish could uh, safely be consumed. Which isn't the case now, right? You can't, you can only consume X amount of fish What's, what's that, a, a week or a right. month or something like that? I'm not sure of the exact um, amount. It's very, very minimal. And, um, you know, <laughs> it was kind of funny to read these EPA-related um, news articles that um, really were, I think, looking to pit the town's folks against the tribe because um, they didn't reach out to our tribal chief to get any um, any quotes from him or any perspective from him. And um, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, these towns, you know, these towns along the river, you would think that they would also be interested in clean water. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's the same river that runs yeah. past their towns as run, runs past the year. Uh, the tribal community. Right. And, you know, it's it's more of this, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling type of behavior as, is what I read into the articles um, saying that this decision might cost the towns millions and this may happen and that may happen. And, you know, who knows? They were all these sorts of things that they came up with during the land claims when they said the Indians were going to steal everyone's homes. Um, you know, one... One headline uh, during the land claims was, you know, it just set off this frenzy in the in the media, you know, when people would wake up to headlines like non-Indians eviction urged in state area. And that would be a headline that people would wake up to, but it was completely contrary to the story that the tribes were saying, saying that we're not interested in taking anyone's homes at all. So, um, you know, there, there seems to be a real concerted effort to fear monger in the public. But I think, you know, if, if we're talking compare and contrast, back then, we didn't have the allies that we do now. Mm. I know that you've done some work to uh, bring some allies in. You want to talk a little bit about uh, the friends that you've developed and uh, 
Because social media helps a lot, too. It does. Well, I've been really fortunate over the past um, almost a decade now, I've been involved in educational outreach. Um, I worked for Penobscot Nation as the Director of Culture and Historic Preservation for five years. And in that position, uh, we really developed um, programs to educate at the average Mainer about tribal history. And um, what, what we discovered is people just have no idea. They, they don't know at all about this history, which is really quite horrific if you really dig down and dirty into it. And I think, you know, it's been covered up for good reason. You know, it was meant to be. But um, I think that people are inherently good. And when given the good, you know, the right information, they do the right thing. And so what has happened is sort of my worlds have collide, you know, educational outreach, plus my role as a environmental activist and a peace advocate, you know, for over a decade now. And then all of a sudden this, you know, situation comes up where the state of Maine is claiming Penobscot River as their own territory. And so how could I not be involved in that, you know? So I've spent a a good amount of time um, doing presentations and talking with people and informing people about uh, not only this most recent case, but our history as well and how this is, you know, a really... um, what do I want to call it? It's it's something that's happened over and over again in that history. As a historian, I, I used to wonder, you know, what what that must have felt like. Um, for example, when when we lost our four townships that had been reserved to us in perpetuity, you know, things that were promised to us to be protected in um, multiple ways. In in nine, was it 1775, when um, the new country needed allies to fight the war with them against Britain, they came courting the tribes because at that point in time, you know, we were very big and powerful and they needed our friendship. And um, Chief Joseph Orno was the chief at the time. And he agreed that Penobscot people would help and would fight on behalf um, of the American colonists. Um, But he made some conditions. He said, you know, we're really having a hard time with settlers moving into our territory. And, you know, he tried to impress upon the new growing government how important sustenance, hunting, and fishing rights were for Penobscot people and, you know, that they really needed this space in order to to live the way they always had to be able to sustain themselves on the natural environment. And so in 1775, um, Penobscot were promised a 12-mile corridor of land reserved exclusively for them where they could live unmolested for perpetuity. And this 12-mile corridor um, had the Penobscot River running central. And then throughout time, uh, the tribes entered into um, treaty agreements with the colonizing government and would cede portions of their land Uh, that they no longer needed in return for provisions that were being promised to them. And this was really, um, I guess the Penobscots had a sense that they really had to do this because um, their their tribe was dwindling. They were no longer this big, mighty tribe. They were, you know, a small remnant of that. And um, 
you know, there was there were out and out extermination efforts to rid the land of Penobscot people. A lot of people don't know about that um, terrible history, but it was the truth. And um, so they would enter into these agreements. And again, the Penobscot River and the Penobscot fisheries would be protected. The the Penobscots have again and again and again spoken to the colonizing governments about the importance of the fisheries. And so, you know, here we are in in 2012, um, a couple years back, the Penobscot Chief and Council received a letter from um, a department in Maine government that was supported and backed up by an opinion from the state of Maine's Attorney General's office. And uh, it basically said... um, they redefined the Penobscot Indian Reservation, saying that it was their understanding that our reservation did not include the water. <sighs> so, <laughs> you know, sometimes you wonder, they, they go in these small rooms and they start talking to each other, you know, what's going on, the carbon monoxide stuff there or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it just makes no sense. I mean, if somebody, you know, if you know about Penobscot nature and culture and who we are as a people, our whole cultural identity is entwined with that river that we share our name with. And um, I can't in a million years imagine that the tribes would have or ever will uh, give up their claim to the river. And so this is, you know, probably, in my opinion, one of the most egregious assaults and um, the main Indian land claims, which is used often as uh, reasoning behind the state's ongoing oppression and control over um, Wabanaki people, um, is just being used as a tool against us continually. It was supposed to have protected us from any further takings, but we can see now today that it's not protecting us. It is. And, and you know, in, with your work it, with uh, different allies, allied groups, uh, you've done uh, numerous workshops. Um, you've also uh, had some opportunity to uh, teach at Bates. Tell, yeah. tell me about that <laughs> experience. <laughs> Do I have to? Yeah. Um, well... I was really honored to, for, for the opportunity to teach at Bates. And um, I was co-teaching a, a spring term class, Wabanaki Studies. And it was really beneficial to the students. Um, we went around and we visited the tribal communities, um, which they said was eye-opening and, uh, you know, just priceless for their education. Um, and it was interesting because when I was really excited about having the opportunity as a historian to go to Bates and to, you know, to share in that forum, there was an elder who said to me that um, they wouldn't have anything to do with going to teach down there if, if it was them. So they kind of squashed my enthusiasm a little bit. And then, um, you know, as the discussion went further, they, they attributed it to a certain um, faculty member at Bates who had who has long um, undermined Penobscot history, or Wabanaki history, actually. And so, <clears throat> yeah, I, I made some friends at Bates, but, <laughs> but recently there's been a little bit of a change of heart for me. Um, yeah. And uh, I, uh, I, 
I certainly understand um, your uh, reasoning for sort of pulling back away from that. Um, I do want to come to uh, one of the one of the reasons I wanted you on the show today, and of course I review the newspapers in the mornings all the time, and uh, there was a there's an article in um, this morning's paper that that just came out from Portland Press Herald, and uh, I just want to get your comment on this. I don't, don't know. I don't believe you've had time to read it, but I'll read it to you. That looks long. Let me know if you need help. It's, <laughs> I will. Uh, it, the, the title, it's, it's in the Portland Press-Herald. It's in this morning's paper. And the title is, State Should Drop Lawsuit That Would Grab River from Penobscot Nation. Nice. Uh, it's uh, in uh, the opinion section. It's quite a long uh, article. And it starts, uh, for those of you who, who don't get the Portland Press, uh, it's an article by uh, Nikki Sakira. She's a resident of Freiburg, and she's one of those allies that uh, uh, we've developed. And uh, she writes, uh, the Penobscots are an ancient river-based people. Taking away their waterway is cultural theft. Freiburg in 2012, then Attorney General William Schneider on behalf of the state of Maine initiated a dubious claim against the Penobscot Nation, challenging their rights to the river, uh, river water on the reservation. The Penobscots were left no choice but to defend their territory through legal channels. Schneider's successor, Janet Mills, is continuing the litigation process with the backing of powerful corporate interests, along with the support of some municipalities where these corporations are based. To rescind the Penobscot's inherent rights to the river that bears their name, the Penobscot people are an ancient riverine culture that has lived in synergy with the river for thousands of years before the disruption of European encroachment. Like other indigenous peoples of the Americas who have been subjected to genocide and conquest, the heritage and culture of the native people of Maine need protection and respect, not continued assault. The Penobscot should be able to live in peace and safety after enduring the multi-generational traumas inflicted upon them. Why are we engaged in such a battle involving our own Maine people? Why is the state poised to seize part of the Penobscot Reservation, which has always included the river, using our tax dollars? Attorney General Mills has an opportunity in this case to champion the rights of Maine's indigenous people. History informs us that the Penobscot Territory has been reduced to its current boundaries and negotiated by the state for 195 years. Their territory was purportedly legally protected, first in 1775 through a resolve passed by the Massachusetts Provincial uh, Congress. Maine was part of Massachusetts until 1820. Again, through the 1796 Treaty, which Massachusetts, and finally again through the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act of 1980. Then Attorney General James Tierney cited the Indian 
Claims Settlement Act in 1988 when he issued an opinion that the Penobscot Reservation included the river of the Penobscot River and that the tribe was entitled to take fish within the reservation boundaries as long as the fish were used for individual sustenance. It would be in the state's best interest for Mills to issue an opinion that aligned with Tierney's, if solely for the purpose of achieving truth and reconciliation. The state cannot succeed alone in this lawsuit. It must have accomplices. I understand that Bruce Bork, a senior lecturer in anthropology department at Bates College, is serving as the state's expert witness against the Penobscot Nation in the theft of their ancestral river. His deposition aids and emboldens the state in its attempts of another breach of treaty to further lay claim that the Penobscot have no rights to the river. Bork has stirred controversy among his fellow anthropologists and local historians with his thousand-year theory, essentially rewriting Native American history. Bork hypothesizes that the red paint people are a lost tribe that existed thousands of years ago and mysteriously vanished, and that the Penobscot and other tribes of the Wabanaki Con Confederation, which also includes the Abenaki, Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, and Passamaquoddy peoples, are relatively recent arrivals to the region. Bork's theory puts his own self-interest in sharp focus as it allows the Maine State Museum, where he is curator, to hold on to any artifacts, bones, or other relics that are over a thousand years old on the grounds that they belong to some mysterious vanished race rather than to Maine's native tribes. This is one example of continued oppression that the Wabanaki face. Actions such as this occur as part of a long continuum in the erasure of their inherent rights and cultural narrative, a history and culture that remain under threat of continued ethnocide and colonization. Bork's interests appear to be aligned with his position in the state government and not in the preservation and dignity of native peoples. While Bork's action raise serious questions regarding academic integrity, of greater concern is the willingness of the Maine Attorney General's Office to use such re revisionist history to advance the corporate-backed assault on the heritage, identity, dignity, and human rights of our state's indigenous peoples. Such institutionalization, racism has no place in Maine's reputable state institutions. I ask others to question the Maine Attorney General's case against the Penobscot and critically examine Bruce Bork's conflict of interest. We can all learn from this example of harmful and unnecessary cultural conflict. As citizens, we have a duty and a right to speak out against this lawsuit and the state's government insistence on instigating this conflict with our tax dollars quite an article. Bravo, that about says it all. I think it does. We can go home now. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> wow. I'd like to get your comments on, on this article. I well, that certainly uh, says it all and, uh, and describes my falling out of love with Bates <laughs> um, in, in good detail. 
Um, what I like most about this article is the fact that um, people in Maine are learning and they are speaking up about this. Um, they're realizing that this is just um, an ongoing battle in you know, a centuries-long clash of cultures. And one thing I like to remind people when, when I'm talking with them um, is that we're writing our grandchildren's history. And so how this is going to end really is up to um, many of us to speak up and to um, ask questions. And what's a lot of people don't understand is that the Penobscot Nation is comprised of over 200 islands in the Penobscot River. Um, and so to, to say that our river isn't included in our reservation is just a ludicrous assertion. Um, recently, I, um, after attending a tribal council meeting in December, um, you know, where they were giving updates on this river case. And really, it's very slow moving. It doesn't seem that the case will ever reach the light of a courtroom. Uh, at this point in time, there's um, a judge in U.S. District Court who is going through tombs and tombs and tombs of documents to come up with a decision. And um, let's see, I'm trying to think. So there's very little movement. There's no attention in the um, mainstream media. It's really up to us people to spread the word and to educate one another. I guess in, um, you know, with a lack of proper media coverage, we'll have to become the media. And after the uh, council meeting in De December, I, I felt really um, futile. Like, you know, what are we supposed to do? Just sit around and let this happen to us? You know, what could we do? And so it occurred to me um, the following morning that um, I kept getting, like, all these requests to sign all these various petitions, you know, that come your way through uh, Facebook or, or emails. And um, as I was moving through all these petitions, I thought, wait, we could write our own petition. And so I created a petition on moveon.org that called for the um, state of Maine and the attorney general's office to cease and desist. Um, that's the only way I can see this being resolved in a timely and not so costly manner. Otherwise, this has the potential to drag out for years and years. And so um, we got over 2,000 signatures on that petition. And people were writing um, comments that indicate to me that we have tons of friends um, and even people that we don't know who are getting an understanding of what is going on just find this um, action by the state to incite conflict really egregious and upsetting. And, you know, this is not happening in their name. And so they want to know on whose behalf is this war being waged? Because we don't know. Why? Why does the state need that river? Why do they want that water all of a sudden in 2012? That's a good question for all of us to be asking. Well, I guess there's a number of perspectives on that one. You know, there's some, some kind of different theories as to why now, I think. Yeah. Uh, it, the case has really caught the attention of a lot of environmental groups uh, across the state. 
and um, a lot of environmental groups have invited me to come and speak with them to talk more about this case and about the history preceding it. Um, you know, baffling to everyone is always the main Indian land claims. Um, and I agree, it is pretty baffling. You know, it's so complex, and it turned in, it was turned into something it was never intended to be. You know, it was intended to be the tribe's um, resolution and restitution for uh, territory long stolen that caused the tribes to live in abject poverty for so long. Um, and so this, you know, just big move towards justice through um, the land claims didn't pan out the way we had intended it to. We were really looking forward to a new government-to-government relationship built on mutual respect and uh, working together uh, cooperatively, and that just never happened. And um, more, more education around the history, more education around the land claims is really helpful for people to understand where we're at today. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people in state government just don't know their own history. And so they're apt to make a lot of very serious mistakes. Yeah. Yes. History repeats itself, they say. Oh, gosh. So I think that that's what's happening now. Yeah. So this, you know, the petition was delivered on uh, January 8th by a group of people following a rally of unity at the State House. The rally of unity was attended by close to 200 people, got very little um, media coverage, even though. Um, news releases were sent out. Um, let's see. There was a great lineup of environmental people who, um, you know, were concerned about the water, about the water resources. Um, there's a lot of connection uh, with this current river case to the Stop the East-West Corridor campaign. Uh, yeah. Yep. So the Stop the East-West Corridor campaign um, coincidentally has also fallen silent over the past several months and we don't hear so much about that in the news anymore but um, what that is all about is um, a privately owned gated and tolled 220 mile industrial corridor complete with a pipeline um, is being proposed to cross the state from Coburn Gore over to Callis. And one of the places that they will have to cross is the Penobscot River. And I think they're probably challenged on how they're going to go about and do that because, you know, when when a reservation for a tribe is created, it is actually land that is reserved for that tribe's exclusive use. And the designated use for our reservation is clearly sustenance hunting and fishing. And that does not go along with an industrial corridor and pipeline. And um, a lot of people have their suspicions that, that that might be the driving force behind the claim to the river. Yeah. Although now they, they claim that that's, they don't think that's going to happen. But uh, I, I kind of think that they're just, it's just a calm before the storm. I think it's probably still in the works yeah i agree and so i've just been you know following following the news following the you know the legislature as best you as best i can and i did notice um that judiciary committee had on their calendar a presentation by the attorney general's office on february 3rd so i listened into it and um 
and it was interesting. And, and knowing that the Attorney General's office was going to be doing a presentation, I had emailed the Judiciary Committee and asked them if they could ask some questions about this river case. I told them about the petition where over 2,000 people signed. People want to know on whose behalf is this war being waged. And uh, nobody asked my questions directly, although um, one of the persons on the Judiciary Committee, Senator um, Chris, Chris Johnson, he did ask um, the Attorney General if she could explain a little bit about current tribal litigation and the Settlement Act and treaties as it related to tribal litigation. And uh, Janet Mills says, um, she said, there are no treaties, first of all. There's only federal legislation and state legislation, which is infuriating when you think about the treaties that our ancestors negotiated and entered into in full faith, expecting that they would be um, carried out in time again, they weren't. You know, the 1796 treaty, which um, Nikki references in this article, that was supposed to provide protections. The reserves were set up to, pro- to provide protections. And by 1797, just one year after that treaty was signed, the colonial government gave permission to a settler to build a wing dam onto some rocks referred to as salmon rocks just south of Indian Island. And, you know, the Penobscots would enter into agreements and within the year they're broken. They meant nothing. And so historically, the protections haven't been there for Penobscot people. When we entered into the negotiations for the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act, it was under the assumption that we wouldn't have to keep fighting all the time. But as you know, uh, the Settlement Act is sometimes nicknamed in our community the 1980 Attorney's Employment Act because there's been about 13 to 14 litigated cases so far. And for me, this is, you know, this is huge. This is this is cultural genocide. And, um, you know, for, for Mills to say there's no treaties, well, the language in the Settlement Act that describes our reservation territory comes directly from the 1818 treaty uh, between Penobscots and Massachusetts, which Maine ratified in 1820 and agreed to agree to. So... Um, they need to go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they need to start teaching some truth in their history. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I do have to, you know, spend some time talking about the allies that have developed and, um, you know, some really good people that are really seeking to understand this ongoing history and to, to break that cycle of oppression that that has been happening in this place. Um, so very grateful for those people who uh, support the tribe and um, our good friends and um, there's thousands of them and that's the difference between now and say 1970s and 1980s you know last time we were engaged in a legal battle of this magnitude with the state um, is that we have a lot of people who have taken the time to understand history and they want to do the right thing and I think the other difference, too, is that we've also had an opportunity over the last, I don't know, decade or so to create uh, workshops and to uh, 
let people know what really has gone on, mm -hmm. you know, historically. Yeah. And uh, I know that uh, in the classes that I taught at the university, uh, a lot of the, the students were just appalled when they, when yeah. they heard, you know, the, you never think of, of us being at war for over 100 years, yeah. you know, and, all, and, they, and they were all over broken treaties. Yeah. So, so, you know. I wanted to talk about something that was mentioned in this um, main voices in the Portland Press-Herald. Um, the author, uh, Nikki Sakira, writes about the James Tierney decision. Yeah. Um, in 1988, the attorney general at the time, James Tierney, uh, was asked his opinion regarding taking of salmon in the Penobscot River. And um, what was happening was there was a, some sort of ceremonial celebration taking place at Penobscot Nation, and they were planning to gillnet 20 salmon um, for this purpose. And so a question came up um, whether or not that would be legal for them to do, to take the salmon out of the river. And so James Tierney in 1988 uh, wrote an attorney general's opinion saying that in his opinion and in, in, in the opinion of that department that it would be legal because Penobscots have um, you know sustenance hunting and fishing rights within their reservation boundaries and that the the river was their reservation boundaries. And so I don't know what happened between 1988 and 2012 for the Attorney General's office to then uh, write a contrary opinion. But um, I agree that probably the best thing that could happen is they could realize their mistake in their 2012 opinion and issue another opinion based on knowledge and not rhetoric. Yeah. I, I mean, think it, that that's pretty significant, that there had already been a, an opinion. I mean, and, and you think, you know, this whole thing's always been about land, right, oh, yeah. from, right from the very beginning, from when the pilgrims landed on the shore on our shores. Yeah. It's always been about land. Absolutely. And land is wealth. Yep. And, you know, and the resources on the land that, that creates wealth and it, and it helps you in this society uh, to be self-sufficient. Yep. And, you know... Our elders um, in years past had always predicted that, you know, our next wars were going to be over water. And uh, here we see that happening right before our eyes being played out. Uh, water resources globally are just dwindling. You know, water resources are being destroyed all over, especially um, as a result of um, extreme extraction processes for fossil fuels, hydrofracking, and and things of that sort are calling for the use of just enormous amounts of water, which they then um, add all kinds of chemicals to. Um, and then they use it to crack apart the rocks to extract um, tar sands and, and natural gases out of the rocks. And it's just a death sentence when you think about it, when you take all those millions of gallons of, of fresh water pollute them with some chemical cocktail, which they don't have to identify, by the way, because it's a trade secret. 
And then you have to store this polluted, contaminated, dead water in tailing ponds forever. It's gone, you know. And I think up here in Maine, we have a tendency to overlook the global water crisis because we have such an abundance of water. And so, you know, with plans for an east-west industrial corridor and a pipeline, you know, who knows what they'll be trucking in and trucking out. Trucking out water and trucking in trash, I would suspect. Yeah. And the mountaintop mining stuff that, oh my God. that passed. That's, yeah. To me, I'm, I'm still reeling from that one. I can't, I can't believe that. Well, there's going to be a hearing on February 25th um, for these mining regulations. And um, the Maliseets are really fighting um, this legislation. And basically, it's the same, the exact same mining regulations that were rejected last year by the legislature that are being brought back before the legis- this legislature um, for another look. And it doesn't feel very hopeful, unfortunately. So it seems that Maine, the way life should be, is more about the way life should be for the corporate polluters rather than for the people who live here and call this place their home. Right. So it seems that, um, you know, we're finding ourselves all in the same boat. You know, it used to be that these sorts of egregious activities took place, um, you know, stealing territory from the tribes and keeping them oppressed and in their places. And now... So many people, like these environmental groups that I talk about, are finding that we're all in the same boat and that we're all in this together. And, um, and so they're standing up with us, and that feels really good. So, And that's very different from the is. 60s and the 70s. Yes, it is very different. And I, I think it's very helpful when we have a number of ways to get our perspectives out. I'm very appreciative of WERU, who always um, you know, makes efforts to... Um, to help put us the, un, yeah, exactly. the unheard voices out yeah. there. So kudos uh, to that and, and also to the allies who, who are willing to share information. Um, I do regular updates that I share with um, ally groups and they disperse those amongst um, their peoples and uh, just keeping everyone abreast of what's happening. And together, you know, they get together and they think, you know, what can we do about this? Um, how might we be able to bring about change to this? And so they come up with, you know, ideas as, you know, writing letters to the newspapers or writing to legislators or things of that sort. Right. Now, uh, just on a, on a side subject, can you uh, bring us up to date briefly on the, the uh, truth and reconciliation uh, efforts? Yeah. Um, let's see. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which has been in place since 2012, is finishing up its work. And the Truth Commission was originally charged with um, investigating a small window of time. I believe it was 1970s to present. And they were looking at Indian child welfare and the state of Maine. It had, you know, come to the attention of um, the convening group, which convened this process that, you know, we suffered a long history of um, children being removed from our communities. And I have to admit, when I first um, 
learned about this effort, it took me a while to warm up to it because it felt like it was just so small and narrow in scope. But the Truth and Reconciliation Commissioners have heard a number of testimonies from, I want to say, about 160 people and um, and about 80 Native peoples, people who are part of the Wabanaki tribes, about their experiences with child welfare and the state of Maine. And one thing that they learned was that it was really hard to segment out that that portion of history because that was all based on obviously all the history that preceded it and this whole um, you know effort to um, take care of the Indian problem like you said you know the Indian problem was that Indians were on the land and they wanted the land (laughs) so there was you know efforts time and again to assimilate the tribes well first they wanted to exterminate the tribes then they wanted to assimilate the tribes and now they want to adjudicate the tribes, I yeah, guess. Well, now they just want to make us invisible. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, they, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been visiting all the tribal communities. They've also gathered statements from uh, folks in the main community at large that might have some experiences in this um, area. Um, foster care parents or people who worked with um, state DHHS or even police officers, social workers and whatnot, and of course, um, tribal people. And the TRC is scheduled to finish up this um, fall, and they will have a closing ceremony in June. Um, And so that is finally wrapping up, and it really has been helpful for us to piece together all, all that has transpired over history to bring us to where we are you know, at this place today, it gave us a better understanding of who we are as people and how we got here. And, you know, the messaging and the stories weren't, weren't very nice and they weren't, they were hard to, to hear. But I think it gave the commission um, a real true understanding of the history that preceded um, the taking of these children. And the taking of children goes back a long way in history. I came across, um, a manuscript from 1701 when um, the, tri- the Eastern Indian tribes, as it was described, were asking um, the English to return the children that they had taken. So this sort of business um, has been happening a really long while, and if you really want to um, disrupt a community and disrupt a culture, uh, what better way than by taking the next generation's and, um, you know, through the history of boarding schools, um, they really, there really has been concerted efforts by government to disrupt um, tribal cultures, unfortunately. Yeah. So the, uh, the TRC, the commissioners, now there's five commissioners, I believe. Right. So uh, they're going to uh, be issuing a report of mm-hmm. their findings. Um, and... In those findings, they're going to make recommendations um, to set procedures or whatever. But they can make recommendations, and it's up to um, the agencies whether to accept or reject the recommendations. Um, But yes, they will be writing a report that will outline their findings and will... um, give recommendations to the state and the tribes 
um, regarding best practices uh, moving forward. And we really have no idea what that's going to look like. We're going to have to wait and see. So who gets a, a copy of those reports? The signatories to um, the mandate. So back, um, I think it was in 2011, um, there was there was an event at the State House Hall of Flags where Governor LePage and the five um, chiefs of the tribes, the Micmac, Malisee, Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, two Passamaquoddy tribes, they all signed a mandate. Um, and in that mandate, they agreed to receive and consider the uh, recommendations of the commission in the end. So, um, And we've also recently added on as a recipient to those um, findings, the um, Catholic diocese, because, um, and that's a whole nother topic, and here we have five minutes for the end <laughs> of the show, and I'll just drop another possible topic. But there was a lot of findings um, in the stories around um, church abuses to, to tribal people, and so um, we felt it was imperative to go to uh, talk to the bishop and inform him of what we were finding and ask if he would be willing to receive a copy of the um, report and the recommendations to which he agreed. So, yeah, I mean, you lots would, going on. Yeah, I mean, you <laughs> would, I, you know, I, I think there's probably some hope that the, the church may uh, actually do something about that report with given the pope francis i think he's done a yeah. terrific job as pope i know uh, is it any coincidence that his last name's francis yeah. <laughs> same as <laughs> penobscot chief francis Might yeah there's got to be something some, there some kind of symbolic, symbolic yeah uh, yeah <laughs> gotta be let's invite him over yeah so there's a lot of things happening and sometimes it can feel pretty dismal pretty quick but um you know if we just keep remembering that um, you know, we have all these allies. We have a lot of support, you know, despite feeling down and downtrodden well, a lot know, of times. A, a, fr- a friend of mine asked me, is all your, is everything you're going to say negative? Don't you ever have anything positive uh, to say? Or is there ever going to be a, a good story? Well, know? I think the EPA decision is a great story. We can... You know, we'll have nice clean water we can swim in, and our our descendants will be fish and salmon thanks to the Penobscot River Restoration Project that will get, you know, the fish up there after removing dams. Those are, those are positive things, and the friendships that we make along the way, educating the allies. Well, that's all true. Positives. But then again, it's not. I hate to be negative on this, <laughs> but I, I thought we were I, trying to close with a positive. We, we are, but, but <laughs> we're I, trying. But I do want to say. That the state will definitely appeal the CPA thing. Oh yeah, I. So. It's my sense that they don't even intend to follow um, the order. So it will be interesting to see yeah. how this all transpires. And I, you know, and I truly think that the day that the attorney general, that office, decides that the tribes are not the enemy of the state, that we can work together and partner together and live together, uh, I think that's the time. That's mm-hmm. where the core is right there. Right. Um, so until that day happens... Uh, and it needs to be driven by the citizens of Maine. And I really exactly. feel that, you know, the people of Maine, this is not what they want for relationships between 
um, Mainers and the Indigenous people. The government is not reflecting their wants and needs for the most part. I mean, you get nasty bloggers and things like that after articles in the newspaper, but luckily that doesn't really represent a full scope of um, people's mindset in the state. Yeah, but, you know, the Attorney General always has the last word, the last say in everything. Why is that? It's constitutional. Hmm. The Attorney General's office uh, is written into the Constitution that they're selected by legislators, right? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, they're almost kind of required to step in in these in, in situations. So, well, it's interesting that there's actually going to be a bill going before legislatures. That uh, right now it's in the LR form, LR five sixty six, which is to give the Attorney General's office more autonomy and power. And I'm thinking, they don't have enough already. I know. <laughs> How do you control them now? I mean, we don't even know. Yeah, well, I think there should be another bill that uh, basically takes them out of there. But. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, well. I guess yeah. we've exhausted our our topics uh, here. Do you have one last word you want to say, Maria? Um, I just wanted to, to mention that um, I'm going to be doing a presentation in Orono on February 26th. I believe it's a Thursday night from 6 to 8. Um, and this is, is you know, a response of an Orono citizen who has asked me to come and do a presentation around the river case. because And we didn't even talk about the interveners. Um, a woman oh, in Orono we'll discovered... We've got a couple <laughs> minutes. Go ahead. We'll yeah. talk real fast. Yeah. Uh, a woman in Orono had recently learned that the town of Orono was listed as an intervener in this river case. And there's a list of interveners, 18 in all, and many of the towns and polluting industries up and down the Penobscot River have joined in this case with the state of Maine. And they're asking specifically for a judge to determine that the Penobscot Indian Reservation doesn't include any portion of the Penobscot River. And so town of Orono is on board with that, town of Brewer, Bucksport, Howland, East Millinocket, Lincoln, and, um, and a lot of polluters along the way. So this woman was really upset at hearing that news, and, and she wants to, um, to go to town council and talk about this because she doesn't feel that this decision was made tra- in a transparent way for Orono citizens to have any say in it. So that should be interesting. And that's yeah. February 26th at the uh, Wilson Center in Orono from 6 to 8. I'll be speaking. So that's going to be <laughs> very, very uh, important for people to attend those things. And I mm-hmm. think in, in the other municipalities along the river, uh, there should also be a chance for those members of those municipalities to know what's going on. Yeah and know that they're a part of some kind of suit, which they probably may or may not want to be in. So with that, um, thank you, uh, Maria, for joining us. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows, um, and the music that you hear in the background is Rolf Richter's track called Little Eagles. And I also want to thank uh, Amy Brown, uh, our engineer. So... Thank you for listening, and tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows.